Okay, the last couple of sermons uh, with Deborah and Barak and then uh, with Gideon as well, I referenced for us Hebrews chapter 11 where these judges are mentioned. And I want to draw our attention to that. I've referenced the passage, but I haven't read it for us. So let me read it for us from Hebrews chapter. Can we, can we watch the back, the back feed on the mic a little bit? From Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. These were people who were made strong out of weakness. It is a consistent message that runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that we might not boast of ourselves, but that our boasting would be in the Lord. That passage is from 1 Corinthians 1. And if you take those two passages, the one that I just read from Hebrews 11 and this one from 1 Corinthians 1, they are critical to help us understand what is taking place here in Judges chapter 7 and what we, as the people of God living now, are to draw out of this passage. Because through this passage and through Gideon and the battle that is before us, we are going to be called to a certain level of introspection. We're not only called to look at the external battle to see what's taking place here in this particular scene, but we are allowed, even called, to take a look at ourselves from the vantage point of this passage and ask ourselves, we'll ask, how do you view yourself? Truly, what do you think of you? And is your assessment of yourself accurate? Is it a biblical assessment of yourself? The introspection that is offered to us here, or the opportunity for the introspection that is offered to us here, has a very clear objective to it. It is an objective that is stated numerous times throughout Scripture, perhaps one of the clearest places to understand the objective of the kind of introspection that I'm talking about and that is invited to us here is in 1 Peter where he says very simply and very clearly, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. As you look at yourselves, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, after the introspection, which we're going to be invited to do, then we're going to be called to fix our eyes elsewhere. So let's begin thus as we look at this passage. Weakness. Weakness preferred, weakness encouraged, and weakness victorious. All right? We begin with this idea of weakness preferred. 
last week I suggested the idea that had we been conducting a job interview and the title of the position that we were uh, hiring for was to be deliverer, deliverer of Israel, remover of oppression from Israel, we probably, having read of Gideon, would have skipped to the next candidate. Were that the resume that we got, he probably wouldn't have even gotten through our first interview with him if we saw that kind of history. We'd have probably gone to the next person. Job requirements often include the word preferred, right? You might have MBA preferred or some experience preferred. Well, if you had a job requirement for the deliverer or would-be deliverer or judge of Israel, we might expect to find courage preferred, strength preferred. And yet what we learn so clearly in the passage that is before us today is that God would prefer weakness. Weakness preferred. Too many, declares the Lord. If, if, if I were doing a traditional title for this sermon, and I was tempted to do it, but I like uh, dangerous rolling bread better uh, than this one. Too many would be the traditional title of this sermon. Too many or still too many, declares the Lord. God wants us to see that he is able to save by few and not by many. God wants us to see that weakness is going to be the way that he prefers to make himself known. He wants it to be self-understood. He wants us to be able to perceive the weakness. He wants us to be able to see, to look and to see the weakness and to appreciate the weakness that is there. When he declares too many, Gideon, this is too many people, it is surprising to us. And one of the reasons that it's so surprising to us is because if you recall last week, the, the rallying of the various tribes to come to Gideon's side was, in fact, one of the ways, one of the things that God used to kind of prop up, to build up Gideon's faith. He had sounded the shofar, and lo and behold, the people actually come to him. And this kind of response, this willingness on the part of the tribes to join with him in the fight is the kind of thing, if you recall it, well, we see it exemplified in Judges chapter 3. We see the tribes coming uh, to join the judges in their battle against the various oppressors. And we saw it praised in particular in the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. She condemns those who wouldn't come out and fight alongside, and she praises those tribes who came out and fought with them in that particular battle. So it's surprising to us, but now what we've got in this situation is a different lesson is going to be emphasized by God in this particular passage and in this particular battle, and the circumstances need to be adjusted to fit the lesson that is being taught here. And if we wonder, well, what, what could that lesson be? Thankfully, there's no, there's no wondering about that. It's actually made completely 
plain and clear for us in verse 2 of our passage. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God is addressing the singularly most dangerous sin that exists within humanity in this passage. And it is the propensity that we have within us towards self-salvation by whatever means we might be talking about. The tendency that exists inside of each one of us to think, I can fix it. I can take care of whatever problem is in front of me. I can overcome whatever obstacle is in my way. To glory in ourselves or in what we will accomplish or what we have accomplished at some point. To take credit. Each and every one of us is familiar with this. We boast in different ways. Some of us boast in ways that are very obvious to everybody to recognize that's a boast right there. Others of us are perhaps more subtle in the way that we boast, in the way that we take credit for things that have happened in our lives, for the good things that have happened in our lives, and you know them for the work success that we've had, for the way that we've kept a home, for a family, for sports success, for anything else, academic success. Deuteronomy warned, God warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy of the temptation that they were going to have when they got into the land of saying that my power and my might have achieved this for me. They have allowed me to create this wealth. They have allowed me to get into this land to protect my family, to build up these things. We've done it. I've done it. He warned them against this. Nebuchadnezzar is the great biblical caricature of this as he struts on top of his walls and says, look at the city which I've built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. That's a character, but it's not a character in which we are supposed to say, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. It's a character in which, us, in which the, the portrait of it allows us to say, man, I might not do it exactly like that, but I do the same thing. I do the same thing in smaller ways, in more subtle ways. I take credit for things. And God says in this passage, with all the clarity that we can get, I am addressing that propensity within you. The propensity that you have to take credit. I could do something amazing for you. I could do something mighty through you. But unless I do something, you will take credit for what is happening here. And you need to give the glory to me. And he does that with both the first and the second reduction of these forces that are at Gideon's command. The, uh, the law of God said in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it provides 
regulations concerning warfare. And one of the regulations is, and the officers shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So the first test, of course, results in a reduction of the force by more than two-thirds. And those people go home. The second reduction, because God says there are still too many here, I prefer weakness, I prefer everything about weakness, there are still too many here. The second reduction is determined by how they drink water. Now, I know you have heard sermons, and I have heard sermons about the nature of this drinking of water, and how was it done, and were some who drank the water more attentive than others who drank the water? It is very tempting for me to go in that and try to explain it. I will tell you this, the Hebrew is bewildering. It's bewildering. You, you can't actually make sense of what is taking place here. Uh, we often then want to attribute this reduction to the 300 who were the most attentive during it. Listen, there are plenty of passages in Scripture that call for attentiveness, and this may be one of them, but it's not clear. So use one of the other ones, and you can do a call to attentiveness. The point here, the point of this story is just to reduce. That's the point. I just am going to cut them down, and this is the way I'm going to divide between them. We need to get the numbers down. We are left with an impossibly, and I want to use this word intentionally, because I'll come back to it a couple of times in the sermon, we're left with an absurdly small number of troops to face the enemies that are in front of them. Strength in numbers. Well, strength in numbers is no longer applicable here. We've got just a few men. There's no way that they can possibly defeat the Midianites on their own. If Israel prevails in this battle, it is because God will save. Weakness is preferred. And now weakness encouraged or weakness bolstered here. Gideon has obeyed God. It's kind of remarkable, I think, that Gideon obeyed the Lord here. He sent the warriors back to their homes. And it's not hard to imagine the doubts the second thoughts that he had, having summoned them with his own shofar and having been clothed in the spirit to do that, surely when he's watching 22,000 return, leaving him with a dilapidated force, and then not to mention the other 9,700 who also go back, surely he's wondering what is happening here. Why is this taking place? From chapter 6, we know Gideon, Fear characterizes this man. That's what's down deep inside of him. He's a fearful man. In fact, I suspect, I, I, just, this is just my image that comes to mind. Sometimes you see this kind of a scene in movies where people are looking to get out of something and, and, and the tough guy or the, the, the tough sergeant will hold the weak one who's wanting to go away and just hold him by the collar while other people walk away and say, no, 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 you're not going. I imagine in this scene that God's got Gideon by the collar because surely with the first 22,000 who walked away before, because they were afraid, surely Gideon wanted to join. Surely he was one of the ones, and that's about to be confirmed 
in this very instance here because God recognizes that he's still afraid. He asks an if statement, if you are afraid. But, but of course, what God is actually saying is, since you are afraid, here's what I'm going to suggest you do. But as last week, we saw God, and, and so we see him once again here. He's incredibly gracious and patient with Gideon in this situation. God recognizes the circumstance. He circumstances. He recognizes and appreciates the need that Gideon has in this moment. Fear can be paralyzing. All of us know that. Fear has kept us any number of times from doing things that we otherwise think, we otherwise know we should do them. There's clarity that we should do whatever this is, and fear can be paralyzing. Gideon himself doesn't need, and God recognizes this, kind of a boost of self-confidence. What he needs is his weakness to be encouraged by the Lord. So God doesn't say to him, listen, Gideon, these 300 guys right here, I mean, these are Spartan-like guys. You'll be set with these 300. They're the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Look at these guys. He sends Gideon instead into the camp of the Midianites to find encouragement by listening to Midianites. And so Gideon goes. He goes with his servant. It's always an encouragement to have someone who is with us. And I put on the front of your bulletin that passage about Jonathan and his armor bearer because you get kind of the same image that is here with this. You, you kind of get the, the, the idea here that Gideon is shaking, but this servant who's with him is probably made of a little bit of a different stuff and is actually the one who's got the courage to go down to the camp. Maybe that's reading too much in it. But in any case, it's always good to have somebody with you. They go down into the camp, or at least to the outskirts of the camp of this vast locust-like army, and he hears the dream. And like many dreams, if you are a person who can recall your dreams, I could recall dreams from last night, the dream is absurd. A tumbling cake of barley bread rolls into the camp and flattens a tent. We didn't read here that it was a giant cake of barley bread, that it was some massive, oversized cake of barley bread. It was just a cake that rolled into the camp, generally speaking. As a rule, Barley bread cakes are neither threatening nor destructive. You could roll a lot of them at a tent and be hard-pressed to knock down a tent with a cake of barley bread. The idea that a little loaf of bread could flatten a tent in the midst of the camp of Midian is absurd. It's a ridiculous picture. It doesn't make any sense at all. But the comrade of the dreamer, with divine inspiration and greater perspicuity than apparently was to be found in Israel at the time, interprets 
the dream as the sword of Gideon and God being with Gideon to come in and to conquer the Midianites. So Gideon's encouragement is not a pep talk, affirming, you were the man, Gideon. Who's the man? You're the man, Gideon. It's not a way of saying to Gideon, listen, Gideon, look at the strength of your arm. You're the fastest with the sword. You've got the quickest draw with the sword. You can faint with the best of them. That's not what God does at all. It's an affirmation of his weakness. Let me put it in modern ears. Gideon, indeed, you are like a cupcake. But I am God Almighty. And I can crush with cupcakes if I so desire. So that cupcakes seem like swords and they accomplish my will. I have chosen things that are not to shame things that are. First Corinthians again. God chooses that which seems least destructive, that which seems most fragile to break the oppressor, that which seems most insignificant, most shameful to in fact be the instrument of glory. So Gideon's encouragement is this, Gideon, you fit the bill. You're exactly the kind of guy that I'm looking for. That's you. Your category. Watch what I can do. I'm not making you Samson. Because Samson's going to come in a couple of chapters. We'll have to look at a little bit of a different lesson that's being taught in Samson. That's not the lesson that's being taught here. Allow God to teach different lessons with different judges. I'm not making you into Samson. I'm going to use you as you are to glorify me and to accomplish my purposes, which brings us to weakness victorious. So Gideon's strategy here is pretty clear to us, I suppose, looking at it from a distance. His strategy is to employ a ruse. The tactic that he uses is to distribute the 300 that he's got with their torches, with their jars and their horns, and to make the force appear to be larger than it is, more encompassing than it actually is. Uh, one writer notes that it's, it's a form of psychological warfare, a way to set them at one another in the confusion of the night to stir up panic so that all of a sudden the Midianites are not sure if the enemy is actually in the camp, in their midst or not, and they in fact end up turning upon one another and the ruse works and a rout ensues and the Lord has delivered Israel through Gideon. Uh, I have two questions about this battle that I'm not settled on. I'll throw them out to you uh, in honesty and let you chew on them uh, over lunch. In this passage, Gideon and the Lord's name are linked together. According to the instruction that 
Gideon gave to the 300 and then in its execution, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. That kind of makes sense to us. It was oftentimes fear can be associated with a name. And apparently, given the dream and its interpretation, somehow Gideon's name was known amongst the Midianites. And you want to use whatever you can to strike fear into the hearts of the Midianites. So maybe this is okay and maybe it's completely normal. But it could be a sign of things to come. And when I say things to come, I mean the next chapter, uh, which we'll get to in two weeks from now. Where power seems to go to Gideon's head just a little bit, when, when Joshua marched around Jericho, which is a similar lesson and a similar thing that's taking place here, when Joshua marched around Jericho, he didn't have them shout out for the Lord and for Joshua. It was for the sake of the Lord. The Lord has given it into your hand. So it's hard to say there whether this is a good thing, a normal thing, or perhaps... Uh, indicating that which is to come. The second thing that I'm frankly a little bit confused about, a little bit puzzled trying to figure out whether it was the right thing or not, is that the tribes are brought into the battle. So as the Midianites flee, then the tribes are brought in. And on the one hand, you can say a couple of things. You can say, first of all, it makes sense. As the Midianites are fleeing in perhaps a variety of directions, it's good to then bring in the remainders of the tribe to chase them down in the different directions that they're going. Not only the ones who were originally called, but bring in Ephraim as well to cut off the pursuit in another direction. That can make sense, and it would seem to be something that was praised if it were Judges chapter 5, as I referenced earlier. However, here, one kind of wonders. Wasn't the entire thing about reducing the forces and I'm going to give you victory with 300. So at least there's a question that should come in our mind to go, wait a minute, it was effective, but was it the right thing or not to be done in this circumstance? Frankly, those two things are a little bit hard to say, but now putting it all together, we've got weakness, weakness preferred, weakness encouraged, and weakness victorious. Now we've got to zoom out of this passage. Uh, I don't often ask you to do this in the middle of the sermon because it gets uh, confusing for people. Open to Isaiah chapter 9 for me. Got to go years forward now in Israelite history, perhaps as much as 700 years forward in Israelite history. Isaiah chapter 9. You know this passage. We read this passage every Christmas for unto us a son is born unto us, a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice. This passage, Isaiah 9, is about the coming of the deliverer of deliverers the savior of saviors, the king of kings. To put it in our, our language, the judge of judges. And when this deliverer comes, who is prophesied of here in Isaiah chapter 9, he will bring light into darkness. He will increase joy. He will remove burden. He will break the rod of the oppressor. Verse 4. 
as on the day of Midian. When Isaiah, when the Lord wants to say and describe how the Lord Jesus Christ will do his delivering, saving work on behalf of the people, he goes back to the battle that we just described, to the people that we just described, and says, it's going to be like that day. The battle of Midian foreshadows a greater battle, a greater victory against greater odds. Not 300 for the nation, but one for the life of the world. One against the world. Jesus emptied himself of all of the power, of all of the authority, of all of the dominion that was his and only and rightfully his from all eternity. And he emptied himself and what he took on himself was weakness. He was clothed in the spirit, but he was clothed with weakness and shamefulness and seeming insignificance. There's no way that guy could stand against that which opposes him. Taking upon himself the most unlikely weapon ever wielded, the cross, to defeat Satan and sin and death, and thereby setting us free for the glory of God the Father. That's the story of Midian. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot take credit for it. You cannot subtly, in the deep places of your heart and your thought life, take credit for what God has done. We cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus saves, and that is foolishness to the world. That is a loaf of bread rolling into the gates of hell, into the kingdom of darkness. A little loaf rolls in, and down they go. They are shattered. They are broken down. It is the fragrance of life. So avail yourself of the story of Gideon, but avail yourself of the story rightly. Be introspective. Look at yourself. And affirm once again, in all biblical weightiness, the actual weakness that is yours. You are not strong. Every beat of your heart, every breath that you take, every step that you take is enabled by the Lord. We have no strength in and of ourselves. But then, having assessed that and all of the other things that we might assess about our own weakness as well, turn, your, 
turn yourself, turn your gaze away from yourself. And there's no hope here. And fix your eyes on Jesus. The first call of this passage is not for you to go and be deliverers, go out and be conquerors. The first call of the passage is to say, we're the ones who need to be saved. Beware of tumbling bread. The bread that tumbles here will either crush you or you may eat of him unto eternal life. God chose what is low, what is despised in this world, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time, in Christ Jesus, he will exalt you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. First things first. That's first things first. And then we can say, with this passage, and I'll just say it in, in, in a small way here, we'll be able to look at it in other passages within Judges itself, and then we can say, in his name and clothed in his righteousness, then we can say, put on the full armor of God. Engage the enemy more closely. Wield the weapons of warfare that Jesus has entrusted to us, foes abound, and the Lord can use even you, even us. Jesus said, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And I will add, and where no Midianite raider can get in and plunder what you have stored up in those houses in heaven. It is safe. It is secure. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your victory. And we thank you for allowing us your grace and allowing us to share in the great victory. We thank you for the salvation that we have. And we pray that if any here do not know of that salvation, that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the time to cry out, not in the first place to be some kind of a heroic savior, but instead to embrace weakness and the necessity of strength and salvation that comes from you. One man for the life of the world and for our life. 
Thank you, Jesus, for such a great salvation. Help us to walk well in you. In your name we pray. Amen.